This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, friends. Welcome back. This is part two of us responding to your questions. If you didn't listen to part one, you might want to go back and do that before listening to this one. And if this sparks any questions of your own, you can send them over to us at contact at almostheretical.com. Friends, I wanted to share that Tim and I plan and produce this show in our spare time because we want you to know that you're not alone in your doubts, questions, any pain and hurt that you've experienced in the church or in your faith community, or even if your beliefs are just changing or you're rethinking stuff and you don't have anyone to talk to about that. Whenever you reach out and share how this show has personally helped you, that means so much to us and encourages us to keep going. And so if you feel compelled to share your story or help support the show, you can do that all at almostheretical.com. Okay, let's jump into part two of your questions now. Okay, Angela Witten, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. Here's my question. What are your thoughts on divine healing or miracles? I was raised in a Pentecostal church that taught we should pray for healing when sick. My very devout father battled and died from cancer a few years ago. I don't believe God heals us, and I don't know how to respond to people in my old church and family who still hold on to the belief in miracles and healing. Like, I feel like I'm not going to have like a great way to respond to people, but um, coming from someone who's struggled with like health stuff and had a lot of people pray over him. And I think it's all just bunk and wrong. Um, I don't think that's, uh, there's this divine being that is deciding whether or not he wants to heal certain people. And if he doesn't heal you, then that means you either sinned, which some people believe, or don't have enough faith, or uh, he's trying to teach you something. Those are the kind of the three, three options I've heard, or that he is going to heal you. Um, you know, I've heard, I think it's Science Mike that says, basically covers all the options. God's God's response is either yes, no, or wait. Um, and scientifically that covers all the potential options for uh, an, a response to a prayer. So it's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's, that's how God interacts with the world. Um, and so I, I don't want to come across, you know, insensitive, but I've, I've been hurt very badly by beliefs about divine healing um, and things people have said to me about devout, uh, about divine healing. So that's just, uh, my personal thing. Tim, do you have anything or should we go to the next question? No, no, no. This is good. Well, uh, here's, uh, something I think is significant is this question, which at first seems completely disconnected from, uh, evangelism and the question of what is the gospel is entirely related. So, and this may help people understand my cynicism or it may not, but this is, this is why I, I question versions of the gospel because things that are presented as positive mm, yeah. uh, often actually effectually come across as incredibly negative to many people. And so some versions of the gospel that effectively act as promises for what God wants to do in your life, heal you, you know, in some worlds, it's make you happy, healthy, give you a marriage, give you a spouse, give you kids, give you money, whatever. If if there's some contingency <laughs> of, of well-being connected to uh, your version of spirituality, 
when that stuff doesn't happen, you will either be left floundering or even worse, people will try to stop you from floundering by doing just what you said, Nate, is offering explanations for why you aren't getting what you promised. And that stuff happens all the time and leads to absolutely uh, toxic Christianity where people are said, yes, if you're not being healed. So, Nate, you've had uh, chronic health issues. I've had a, a chronic back issue for 11 years. Uh, we're both pre pretty decent case studies in what it's like to go through faith journeys uh, with dealing with pain where it would have been really nice uh, to be healed yeah. <laughs> about a decade or two ago, right? And I remember, so I've never been very charismatic. Yeah, same here. Uh, I don't I don't think it's my job to go try to convince my friends who are pretty charismatic out of it. Uh, I'm not shy when we've talked candidly that I, I don't know if I think any of it's real or if they're just uh, have found mechanisms that are psychologically comforting for them. And that's fine if, if that's what it is or it could be real. Who knows? Uh, that's, that's not my <laughs> job to figure that out. Uh, but I do know that some of those charismatic friends and others uh, over the last decade have time and again prayed for uh, my back, I've got a ruptured disc, uh, to be healed. And I remember finding comfort in that and feeling really loved by those people in the first couple years, right? But three back surgeries in yeah. and a whole heck of a lot of pain and months and months not being able to get out of bed, I really stopped finding comfort when people would come up to me uh, and ask to pray over my back. Uh, it became very frustrating. <laughs> it actually became uh, spiritually discomforting. And I don't know that uh, that, that means that I, I... I never believed that it was impossible, right? Or that like I, f I know the facts about reality and God does not heal. It was more the sense of like your hope that that's going to happen. The way that resonates with my 10 years of living out the fact that it hasn't happened makes me want to run away from this entire world, yep. this entire religious <laughs> structure, uh, because actually it's just bringing about pain. And these weren't even friends that, you know, like you're talking about would say it's because you're in sin that you're not being healed or you don't have enough faith, right? Uh, if you were really faithful, uh, you'd be healed. And that kind of manipulation happens all over the place. It was really just subtle and incidental uh, that it got to a place where, where people wanting to pray for me to be healed um, became very frustrating. And so that this is one way where your version of the gospel uh, can actually, uh, again, I, I would point, if you're a pastor or someone who gets up on a stage or has a platform of any kind, uh, and are telling people things, uh, you need to be careful about what you give to comfort people because they're oftentimes the other half of the room yeah. will be equally discomforted by whatever you're saying to, to those who you think you're comforting. Yep. Uh, I know we didn't probably sufficiently cover every aspect of that question, but um, I think some of that as far as what to, you know, how to respond to people who are still holding on to that belief and how that's interacting with you and possibly, possibly causing, causing harm um, and hurt like, I don't feel like we're qualified for that. And I really push you to therapy and for anyone else who's experiencing that same thing. Um, I would, I would push you in that direction and encourage you in that direction. Next question is from Elaine Hunt. 
If we are made in the image of God and we hold both potential for good and potential for evil, is this then an accurate image of God? God has as much potential of evil as we do? Question mark. It's one of those questions which often runs through my mind when I'm trying to get to sleep. Pass. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I think I kind of get where you're coming from, Elaine. Um, I think uh, you have a sense of what it means for uh, humans to be created in the image of God that I'm guessing just based on your question that has something to do with sharing in uh, like a nature, right? So if, if we, if something is true of us, then that means it's at least partly true of God. Um, you're not alone in, in thinking that. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's much of what uh, the author of Genesis 1 and 2 had in mind, um, although it could be. Uh, but I think throughout most of the scriptures, and uh, and here I just sound like a classic like, uh, Bible study pastor dude, um, but I'll, I'll circle back to maybe a more uh, emotional piece. But... Uh, it, it typically has to do with um, a kind of royal representative. So uh, Caesar, for instance, uh, or the emperor, uh, was the uh, a, a divine figure and would uh, set up a, a statue or his image, which represented this sort of semi-divine figure, um, there's remember that whole story in Daniel where there's this uh, image gets built uh, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. and all the people are asked to bow down to that image. It's basically this big statue, and Daniel's not supposed to bow down to it because he believes uh, and is supposed to remember that he that humans are made in the image of the the true God, uh, and so uh, basically the this phrase saying mankind is made in the image of God and the image of God uh, we're made is a polemic against uh, I, the use of, of hard idols, not idolatry as in worshiping other gods, but the, the use of like figurines, which were seen to be uh, basically vessels that the spirit of the God would manifest itself into become embodied in the world. Uh, that's why there'd be these little carbon things. They didn't actually think the wood was God. They thought this was a, a vessel to house their God. Uh, and it's a polemic uh, against um, empire worship in which the king and the king alone is said to be uh, the image of the gods. And uh, so it's basically, it, it is a really important piece, I think, of uh, the the positive ethics of Christianity, which says that all human beings, man and woman, uh, no matter what class or, or gender or race or whatever you fall into, no matter what category, all human beings are equally royal. Uh, it's a power polemic. It's saying that no one has a, a right or a claim to authority at any divine uh, place over another human being. I think that's really, that's a beautiful a beautiful idea, right? Um, but I think that's actually the primary meaning that's being carried forth in the image of God stuff. And of course, in the Adam and Eve story, again, we talked about all this in our first few episodes. It's about who is going to rule the world, right? Uh, God created this world 
and uh, and then he made beings to rule it. And then you have this battle between the divine beings that want to rule, which is kind of the serpent in the garden thing, and uh, the humans that want to rule. So all that to say, I don't, you know, if this question's bothering you and if you th- if and you're philosophizing, um, trying to wrestle with if humans have the capacity for evil, that means God has the capacity for evil. Uh, if it, (laughs) if it would help you sleep at night to know that, uh, I don't think the biblical authors were making the kind of claim about humanity that we are are sharing our nature or entity with, with God, if that could help you sleep, uh, there you go. If not, um, I don't know. Ambient. question i think i've read all of them sure where is it uh scroll down that list of all i like this one joseph joseph and daniel didn't do anything wrong did they oh yeah that's from yeah that's from reddit uh from silly tony on reddit explain what that question is referring to (laughs) if someone didn't hear that episode uh so i think this question is in reference to one of our episodes in the how the bible works series that was talking about uh, this feature that I've called snowballing, where characters are presented as kind of like false heroes. Uh, I think this is a fantastic question. So, yeah. So did they do anything wrong? Because the whole idea was that the Hebrew Bible would show this character and talk about maybe a lot of the good they did in their life. And then like there'd be this thing that disqualified them from being the, the one we're looking for, the Messiah. And then it kind of got passed on to the next one and we'd look again. So um, this person is pointing out, Silly Tony is pointing out, Joseph and Daniel, wait, they didn't have that moment where they did something that disqualified them, did they? Or did they? So did they? Uh, Yeah, so if you remember, what we pointed out is um, there's intentional ambiguity. So uh, we pointed that some of the passages or stories could be read in multiple ways, and that's on purpose so that you could basically hold two opposing ideas in your head at one time. So remember, we were kind of chuckling about the ridiculousness that Moses is presented as this great liberator uh, hero and then he gets banished (laughs) from the promised land and is forced to die alone in the desert because he smacked a rock with a stick, right? And what we pointed out is what that strange uh, ending to Moses' story does is allows us to see that, okay, Moses wasn't the one and still hold a really high view of Moses so that we can take all of the his positive attributes and push them forward to look for somebody else who has those same attributes and more. So it's basically a way of maintaining his reputation and uh, souring it at the same time. So there's something similar goes on with Joseph, uh, where I think intentionally you're supposed to be able to read Joseph as one of the few unblemished characters in all of the Bible. And, uh, and also, uh, Joseph as someone who kind of has a failing at the end. And, uh, this is a, like part of why I love this question. Um, this is the, one of the writing projects I've been working on. I think Joseph as a motif and character motif is the most important in all of the Hebrew Bible. And it's, uh, it's what Jesus, Joseph is the character that Jesus's life is modeled after. And, uh, and so his story, the Joseph story is the story of someone who is, uh, 
unjustly persecuted uh, by his own kin, and then who graciously forgives those, uh, in Joseph's case, his brothers, who uh, abused him and tried to kill him, sold him into slavery. Uh, And then instead of getting vengeance on his brothers, he actually uh, ends up saving his brothers, but he's only able to save them because he's exalted to power. Uh, there's even this uh, this fun intentional ambiguity where it says Joseph was number two in command in Egypt. He was Pharaoh's like go-to uh, assistant. But then it says practically he was basically uh, in charge of the whole land. With all intents and purposes, Joseph is exalted to the the supreme ruler over the entire world is, uh, is sort of how it functions in the story. But so, so if you remember how the story ends, why did the Israelites end up in slavery in, in Egypt in the first place. So there's a famine, right? This is uh, a famine in the land. Everybody runs to, uh, to Egypt, and Joseph was the one who gets these dreams that there's going to be a famine so he can plan ahead uh, and make the Egyptian empire rich by basically uh, spending several years planning for this famine because they had this like divine uh, warning about it, right? So first, this wealth saves... Uh, the, the tribes of Israel uh, because they all get to escape the famine and come to Egypt. But that's how they end up in Egypt. But then Joseph is the one in charge who ends up, he's in charge of all the food, and he ends up buying off the the land and the assets of everybody in, <laughs> essentially the way the story tells it, everybody in the entire uh, Near East in exchange for food. So he's the hero whose political policy actually ends up enslaving everybody to the Egyptian empire, which is why later on the Israelites need to be liberated from slavery. So it doesn't really say Joseph became this cruel dude, and yet Joseph is the one in charge of the policies that end up uh, enslaving the entire uh, entire nation. Mm. So uh, interestingly, I think you're supposed to be able to read it as Joseph is this kind of pure, unblemished archetype uh, that eventually leads to Christ. And uh, Joseph was also single-handedly responsible, uh, or almost single-handedly responsible, for the enslavement of uh, thousands and thousands of people. And then Daniel, I'll just say, Daniel is Joseph. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of have to abbreviate this part, but, uh, for fun, just go read, uh, the book of Esther and the book of Daniel, uh, and just know that they are retellings of the Joseph story. Um, so, uh, Esther is one of my favorites because she's the only woman who's presented in this snowballing chain of actually messianic, uh, Joseph-like, uh, characters, uh, but that she is. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, which which reminds me, um, Sarah, who transcribes all of our episodes. She's amazing. Thank you, Sarah. Which, by the way, now that Sarah, now that you are transcribing these shows, I like secretly have this urge to put in just like crazy complex words into the show. Like what if I said supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or what if I said you got any Tim like right off the top of your head? I mean, she's going to type this. Just sneeze. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyways, you should go check out the transcriptions. They're all up on the website, almostheoretical.com. So yeah. So she also kind of had a question along the lines of why, uh, why are there women included then if it's a, kind of a patriarchal am i butchering the question do you have it there yeah i'm gonna try to pull it up okay i'll just read it uh first as nate mentioned early on in the episode the dudes in the bible often seem pretty bad but the women were all right and tim gave the caveat at the end that these protagonists are mainly men because the authors and arrangers and their audience were part of a patriarchal culture and would not have looked to a woman to be their leader so can we hold to the idea that women who are featured in the Old Testament stories such as Deborah were actually commendable or morally upright? Are they heroes we can point to? Uh, or do you think it's likely that they were also problematic, but the authors felt no need to use the literary device of letting the audience down because they would never have expected us to get our hopes up in a woman and put messianic expectations on her in the first place? That's a solid question. I really, I mean, that's... Yeah. Wow. Yep. That 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 clearly comes from someone who transcribes our shows and knows like everything <laughs> that you said in there because that's like a really complex question. Yeah, it is. So, uh you do have the same snowballing literary device happening with key women figures who are hero figures. They're protagonists. One of my favorites um there's this early motif in Genesis about like the especially beloved uh, wife. So there's the Rachel and Leah saga, and Rachel is the uh, kind of especially beloved one. And that's the beginning of a motif that snowballs forward and then gets lumped in with this other kind of female hero motif, which uh, begins with Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. Uh, whose main role or part in the story is that of helping uh, sing a song. Uh, but it's an important song at the most important moment in Israel's history when they've just crossed the Red Sea and uh, entered freedom for the first time. And both these characters, actually this is something fascinating, we should probably take more time to talk about, those then get merged in one uh, female figure who is Hannah, uh, later on in the book of Samuel. And then Hannah sings a song as well, um, but Hannah also is positioned uh, as R Rachel, who is the heroic mother of Joseph, who ends up being the hero, right? Um, uh, Hannah ha ends up being the same, especially beloved and mother of the important hero figure. Uh, but then both of those snowballs combine and they end up getting passed forward to Mary, of course. And that is why, uh, historically in non-Protestant world, uh, Mary has been given uh, great prestige uh, because she's the pinnacle of the feminine hero snowball. Uh, so Mary, whose name literally is the same name as Miriam, uh, she's the new Miriam who sings a song at the great moment of liberation. Um, so that's what the Magnificat is. Uh, so there are these motifs of 
uh, a female protagonist getting snowballed forward, which seeing these should very much question patriarchal views of the scriptures. And at the same time, uh, other than, like I just said, Esther, as a, as a type of Messiah who saves the nation from genocide by rising to a surprising position of power within the empire. It's, it's Esther as Joseph, which is also as the Jesus uh, story. Um, other than Esther, all of the would-be messiahs are men. And again, that's the same caveat because uh, while they were willing to give certain women great esteem, uh, they were not looking to elect a woman as their president, if you get what I mean. Uh, they weren't ready for that. And so uh, they were still looking to a man, a son, a boy child, uh, to be uh, the ruler, the king. Uh, so Esther is the queen, and that's as close as we get. Uh, but the rest of it is uh, you have hero, female heroes, but not female messiahs. Okay, do you want to do a couple more questions here, and then we'll wrap this up? Sure. Okay. From We could split it. We could even split this in two. I think we should. So maybe, yeah, maybe uh, you're, if you're listening to this, maybe you are in part two right now. You probably are. <laughs> You've just time traveled. <laughs> Welcome to part two. <laughs> you, you knew you were in part two before we did. <laughs> okay, so uh, from Never Stop Starting, I kind of like that, um, on Reddit, Question is, I'm happy to have come across this podcast. I've been catching up over the weekend listening to the gender series. Thank you. I've struggled for years with the tension between sharing the Bible in a way that people are more likely to accept and feeling a responsibility to speak out about harmful ideologies. For me, it's interwoven into my testimony. I can't share what God has done in my life without talking about the terrible religious ideas that wrecked my life. Some topics quickly turn into a heated debate. A person learns to avoid these things. Those are precisely the issues that need to be discussed more often. How can that be done? It's a question I've been wrestling with. People become limbic over these issues, and there's just no point in trying to reason with them. I appreciate you guys sort of gently pushing Tim Mackey about this. Do we have a responsibility to say and do more when so many people are being hurt by the misuse of Scripture? I also appreciate his work. I see the value in shifting the way people view the Bible and really just increasing biblical literacy. So there's kind of a question in there. Like, how do we do that? How do we, how do we push people on these uh, hurtful and harmful ideas that are derived from scripture? Like, how do we do that well? And is that our, our responsibility? Um, and he mentions in there the Tim Mackey episode. There were two of them, part one and part two. Go back and listen to those um, for a little bit of context on this question. But yeah, I mean, I obviously think this is our responsibility. That's, um, that's A, why I'm doing this show um, and 51 episodes in. And B, why I pushed Tim Mackey on that is because it's the Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility. If you have uh, the ability to help people that are being hurt by bad interpretations of the Bible, and you know, that's not what that biblical writer was actually saying. And you know, there's some complex explanation that's going on there. Yeah. I think you do have the responsibility to, to say that, to help those people that are being hurt by that. And oftentimes, you know, potentially killing themselves over some of these ideas. So yeah, I obviously, I obviously believe that Uh, Tim, what do you think? I know what you think. I mean, this is the, I think it's the perpetual question. Like, honestly, I feel like uh, it's the question our entire nation uh, is asking is like, how do we, how do we talk to people uh, when the conversation uh, seems to turn into, a, you know, complete blow up? Um, because there's such vast uh, chasms between 
many of us. And I think it's a perpetual question because I, I don't think there's an answer. And uh, there are strategies, you know, people like, uh, to quote Science Mike again, or not quote him, but reference him. Uh, there are people out there who do tons of work to see, you know, psychologically what brings people's defense mechanisms down and how telling stories uh, is what actually wins people over and how no one actually changes their mind based on facts, but you change your mind based on your emotions and then you find facts to support what you want to believe. So that can form our approach. Okay, fine. I, I, <laughs> all of those are helpful <clears throat> things to understand and helpful tools. But to me, when we're talking ethics, it, it is rather simple. Uh, if you're at Thanksgiving and this is just the you know stereotypical cliche example. If you're at Thanksgiving and you have a racist uncle who says something racist, your ethical responsibility is to call out your uncle, even if it ruins the entire rest of Thanksgiving. It's black and white. That is your ethical responsibility. Your family responsibilities or your social relational responsibilities to others who may not want you to do that are going to be competing with your ethical responsibility. And it will be up to you <laughs> to decide which you're going to go with. And in my personal experience, I've just found ideology at this point doesn't matter. Strategy doesn't matter, honestly, in, in my experience. And I'm young, I could, could learn otherwise. It's personality. <laughs> People who are uh, resistant and scared of conflict will run away from conflict even when it's the right, when engaging in conflict is the right thing to do. Okay, so Tim, I I did this. Which which part? I that I, I did I did I didn't do this. Uh, this this Christmas, the the baby it's cold outside. Um, <laughs> debate came up. Oh yeah. And uh, it was it wasn't even a debate. It was it was one person sharing their their opinions. Um, and I didn't complaining about how we're all politically correct and stuff. Mostly that. Um, and. You know, got into some other stuff or whatever, but I didn't say, I didn't speak up, I didn't say anything. You know, I guess I just don't engage on some of that stuff because uh, I don't, I don't want the debate. I don't want the like, I don't know. But then, I mean, like if they were, if they were talking about a group of people, which I guess they are, um, for anyone who's been sexually abused or sexually assaulted, um, you know, am I not defending or standing up for those people? when I, when I don't say anything there, I don't know. That's I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, uh, two, two tools have just helped me understand the, the great difference between me and many other people, which on my own personal journey is important. The first is the Enneagram. Uh, and the second was a Malcolm Gladwell podcast. Uh, so <laughs> if you're into personality types, like I just know I've seen it firsthand, uh, because it came up, I'll, I'll go back to referencing the story of, of me getting uh, <laughs> fired and manipulated by my church. Um, I'll just say this. Uh, all the ones and the eights uh, have an easier time uh, ruffling feathers. These are the reformers and the uh, protectors. Um, they're willing to jump into conflict. Uh, I had a lot of good friends who are nines. Several of them agreed wholeheartedly with me, believed that what was happening to me was completely wrong and evil. And when it came time for them to be able to do anything about it, they completely shied away simply because they were scared to enter into a uh, conflict. 
And they shared that with me later and apologized that they were too scared. So uh, I just think we have, um, we're, we're wired in very different ways. I am very different from you, Nate, and, uh, and all of us as people are just very unique uh, from one another. Enneagram's helpful because it, it points out patterns where you can understand yourself and understand others. Uh, I have spent time at hard points in life agonizing over this at not understanding why more people wouldn't stand up and take the hard, the hard choice. Uh, stand up for me, stand up for others, stand up for marginalized people, etc. Um, and it, it's taken me a long time to realize that just I have a much higher threshold for conflict than most people. Uh, and so that, that was the uh, Malcolm Gladwell podcast. I, f- I just found so fascinating. There's a story on Rick Barry, uh, old, old white basketball player who uh, shot granny style free throws. Oh, yeah. And uh, the, whole th- the whole thing was on Rick Barry is one of the best free throw shooters uh, statistically of all time. And statistically, it is well documented, proven that people could add like five to 10 percent better free throw shooting if they are convert uh, convert to granny style underhand free throws, especially the bad free throw shooters like Shaq or the big centers, you know, that shoot like 50 percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Rick Barry spent a long time trying to convince Shaquille O'Neal and others to uh, to go granny style. And it just was this fascinating thing is basically no one did it. Uh, now Rick Barry's son, right, is uh, <laughs> is the next one. It took an entire generation, uh, someone who's got some of the same uh, personality probably as Rick Barry, to be willing to shoot granny style just because it was, <laughs> it was so out of fashion. It was so frowned upon. Uh, and it was like not, not masculine, not cool, right, uh, to shoot underhanded. Uh, it just ended up being this expose that Rick Barry is just like off the charts when it comes to someone who – not only is not conflict avoidant, but like doesn't even seem to mind conflict whatsoever to the point where he wrote an autobiography and and added to his autobiography uncensored some of the, the worst things that his wife and children had said about him. Just like put it like it didn't even bother him to put just these like uh, just these scathing critiques about the kind of person he was in his own autobiography. Right. Like, like no one does that. It was just someone who didn't care at all what people think of him. And I think because of that often was a jerk. Uh, he had a low uh, sensitivity for how he was affecting other people, but also because of that was willing to do the thing that was completely uh, uncool and would come with, with massive social ramifications. And so in some ways I, I just realized, oh, like that, that other scale besides the Enneagram personality type, there is this scale uh, of conflict avoidance and how much, uh, how much the, the respect of society around us and the people around us uh, drives our decisions. And we all fall somewhere on that spectrum, uh, nature, nurture, who knows. But I just know that regardless of your faith, your ideology, the things you believe in, when push comes to shove, <laughs> what I've seen is that that thing ends up uh, deciding the kinds of actions you will take or not take as much as what you say you believe in. Uh, and, and that's just weird, right? That, that, uh, I guess is another thing to just show that like <laughs> faith doesn't solve all our problems. Um, cause I've seen a lot of people who believe beautiful things, uh, be scared to act on them. So all that to say, this is a long ways from the question. My view is that the ethics are black and white. 
uh, stand up for what is right, stand up for justice, call out when things that people say or do uh, or beliefs that people are promoting are toxic and hurtful and problematic. It is your ethical duty, uh, responsibility to call that out. I also know life isn't that black and white and we don't operate based on ethical black and whites. Uh, the things that actually <laughs> determine our behavior are way more complicated than that. So I know I could do a podcast where every week we say, hey, it's your duty to call out your racist uncle. And nine out of 10 people are going to go back to Thanksgiving and not call out their racist uncle. So in terms of what's actually helpful, I don't have any <laughs> answers whatsoever. Okay, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to stop this one right there. This was part two of your questions. In part three, the first question we respond to is, did the exodus really happen historically? And do we have to believe that it did? So if you don't want to miss that, make sure you click subscribe in your podcast app. And if this show has been helpful, maybe consider sending it to a friend that you think it could be helpful for as well. Okay, thanks for traveling along on this journey with us. Remember, you are not alone. We're here with you. We're here for you, and there are so many others on this journey as well. We'll catch you next time.